Well, tonight I thought we'd look at this character that we find in the Old Testament, Jeroboam, and uh, came across in personal reading, was struck again by the reality of this situation here, the consequences of convenience. And this Old Testament narrative has so much to teach us about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, about how people are, even in this 21st century, and the seriousness of playing fast and loose with the Lord. And it focuses on this one man, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and you might say, well, that name doesn't really mean much to me. But, you know, if you were to read through the books of Kings and Chronicles, you would see his name appearing again and again and again. And often his name appears linked with the following phrase, he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin by which he had made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger. And when you come across that phrase, it's said in a way that implies you know what that means. But what does it mean? What was Jeroboam's sin, and why is it so significant for us to consider tonight? Well, in the previous chapters leading up to 1 Kings 14, you get the picture of what took place. The people of Israel, 12 tribes all together, were divided at that point into two separate kingdoms, and partly as a result of poor leadership, and two of the tribes would form the southern kingdom, Judah, and they would be under a man called Rehoboam. The other 10 tribes came together to form the northern kingdom, Israel. And Jeroboam, son of Nebat, was the main leader of those ten tribes, and he would become the first king of the new northern kingdom, Israel. And he would set himself up in a place called Shechem. Now, it wasn't long into his reign that he was faced with a problem. And the problem was this, that Jerusalem, which was in the southern kingdom, was still the religious center for the people as God had decreed. And so the temple was there, the focus of worship of the great God was there, but Jeroboam was concerned that those leaving his kingdom to go and visit Jerusalem in the south, it would undermine his power and his influence and his control over the people. He saw it as a threat to his crown. And so Jeroboam came up with a plan to deal with this. And he ordered for two golden calves to be made and for them to be placed, one in a place called Bethel and the other in Dan. And he then decreed to the people, oh, they didn't need to go to Jerusalem to worship God anymore because now there were these other ways to worship. And Jeroboam told the people, you know, it's too much for you to keep traveling to Jerusalem. You need something more convenient for you. You need something that fits in better with your busy lives didn't matter about the old ways that God had revealed. This was a new and better way, and it was equally as acceptable, so said Jeroboam. And so these temples were built. There was a priesthood ordained, feast days appointed. But instead of worshiping God in Jerusalem, the people were told that they could do something similar to these two golden calves of gold in Bethel or Dan. And so this was Jeroboam's sin. And it caused Israel to sin, and it provoked the Lord God. And when you look at his reasoning from a worldly point of view, it does seem reasonable. It's subtle, it's strategic, 
but it's utterly sinful and abhorrent in the sight of God. And it's something that the Old Testament highlights again and again. And it's this idea of the, the pragmatism, if it works, it must be right, of Jeroboam. And friends, that's seen all around us today, even in what many see as, as Christianity, and yet it's far from what the Bible, God's Word says about true Christianity and what God's standard is. And far from the truth of what it really means to follow Jesus Christ and to be in a right relationship with God. But then if you look at verse 1 of 1 Kings 14, a crisis comes into Jeroboam's life. And this crisis exposes his heart and also gives us an illustration of what so many people are like today. And verse 1, it says, At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick. This crisis hits. Jeroboam's world is suddenly shaken. Jeroboam, this leader of men, the leader of the, the breakaway, the hardened warrior. Sometimes he'd been a, a cruel and a violent man. And yet he is in turmoil when his son becomes sick. He loves his boy Abijah. And what we see is there's a vulnerability, there's a tenderness underneath the hard exterior, particularly for his family, for his son. And that's not unusual. Sometimes you come across those and they seem hard and tough and ruthless on the outside, but you find they have a, a softness underneath which they try to hide. And there's some vulnerability, maybe it's family, or something they really care about. For Jeroboam, it was his son. And this illness which strikes his son reveals so much about his heart, particularly in his attitude towards religion. You see, Jeroboam saw religion as something he could use for his own purposes, for his own advantage, something that he could make serve him, something that was convenient. And the new way that he had set up to do religion was not because he didn't believe that there was a God, but to have this element on his terms, as well as keeping the people on board. And Jeroboam's sin was not that he suddenly gave up any belief in God, but thinking that God and the worship of God was something that he could play around with to meet his own ends. To create a religion which was more convenient, which suited his agenda and his purposes and his plans, and so he just altered what God had required. And he was happy to promote religion amongst the people. He encouraged them to worship, but in a way that did not inconvenience them too much. He wanted it to be comfortable. He did not want it to impose too much. He didn't feel that it needed to be regulated by what God had said. And the argument was, well, the main things are still in place. The idea is the same. It just looks a little bit different. But it was far more serious than that. And actually, it would open the door for Israel to be taken up with idolatry. And Jeroboam's sin was to dismiss God's commands, God's instruction, God's requirements as to how he was to be worshipped and for Jeroboam to do his own thing. Why? Because God's way was inconvenient to Jeroboam. It didn't suit him. It didn't suit his purposes. And so he created something that did. He wanted it on his terms. And it was all good. It seemed to be going well, and the, the people embraced it, and, and it was going on. But then 
This crisis comes, his son is ill, and ask yourself, where does Jeroboam turn? Where does he go then? Well, suddenly, he goes back to what he knows was right. In his desperation, he knows that he needs the man of God. When all was going well, he he did what he wanted. He went his own way. He felt that he could disregard the Lord in his truth because he knew better. But when the crisis came, he doesn't go to Dan or Bethel. He doesn't go to the golden calves and the sham priesthood that he'd set up. He goes to God's true servant, someone, by the way, that he previously tried to kill. You know, it's a common attitude, even today. People go on doing what they want and living as they want, even maybe in a religious way, but when the trouble comes, suddenly they consider what they previously dismissed. And the tragedy is that Jeroboam's attitude is not just found in those outside the church, but those inside churches. There are those who say they believe, they don't deny God, they want the benefits that God can give. And when trouble comes, they turn to God, they turn to prayer, they look to the love of God, the hope and his mercy. They want that side when it fits in for them. But they don't want to hear of God's truth. They don't want to hear his demands. They don't want to hear about his holiness and his righteousness. They don't want to hear about wrath and judgment. They like the idea of what the gospel can give, but they don't want to submit to the claims of Christ. They don't want to consider his demands. They want a Jesus of their own making. Spirituality on their terms. What's convenient for them. They want a gospel that that will bless them, but does not challenge them or call for any laying aside of self or their own ideas. And there are those who want to give the people that. And so they have done as Jeroboam did, and they've changed and adapted and modified the message of the Bible, cutting out certain parts and creating their own message. And they don't want to be faced with the the claims of Jesus Christ, with the challenge of Christ, that his followers have to take up their cross and pursue him and pursue holiness and come away from the world. That's far too severe. It's far too narrow, far too unloving. And you have many like Jeroboam, have created a religion to suit them on their terms, but not according to the Lord or to his truth. And when it's given a a kind of Christian coating, you know, it majors on God's love, but without any of the demands or challenges or the submission to the word, they want God to work for them, especially when trouble comes, but they don't want it to hinder their lives and what they want to do. They want a religion of convenience, with maximum blessing, but no cost. And you say, well, you know, if they're sincere, you know, is it really that serious? Is it really something to be concerned about? Well, I would say absolutely. And you say, well, why? Why is it so serious? Well, I want you to see that such an approach is an insult to God. It's an insult to him. You know, if people really understood the seriousness of this in the sight of God, they would turn from it immediately. If only they could see the consequences, they wouldn't continue. Friends, there's always something particularly bad about someone who professes belief in God but tries to use him for their own selfish ends. It's not just disobedience, it's a disregard for him. It insults his goodness 
It shows that such a person is not interested in God for himself, the glory of his person, but he's just interested really in what God can do for them. They don't desire him to know him and to delight in him. They just want a way in which they can make their lives better or where they can find some help in trouble. They're not interested in the giver, just the gifts. You know, think for a moment, you know, on a natural level in our relationships, what causes the most hurt? You know, is it the insults that come from someone that openly dislikes you? You know they don't like you. They know that they disagree with you and they come at you with all manner of things. Or is it the one who said that they were with you and that they were your friend and that they liked you and they wanted to stand with you only then for you to find out that they just wanted to use you for their own purposes? Well, that type of betrayal cuts deep and it's hard to face. What then of the person who treats God like that? They think that they can pay lip service to him and use him to serve their own ends. It's an insult to the mighty God and to his goodness. It also insults his holiness. You know, there is a real failure to appreciate that God is holy. You know, many will not engage with the whole gospel. Many just proclaim the parts that are easy and they minimize the seriousness of sin. And they fail to see and fail to see how that undermines the significance of what Jesus came to do on the cross. Many don't want a holy God. They don't want one who is perfectly pure and stunning in glory, whose anger burns against sin. They prefer to create an easy salvation, a God who will save without any desire to change them or make them holy. A God who will just forgive and accept and see sin lightly and isn't worried about really delivering from sin. They don't proclaim the God of the Bible who sees sin as abhorrent and detestable in his sight. And by having such a low view of God's burning holiness, they undermine the word and dismiss the seriousness in which God sets out his standard and his requirements. And so you get more of a convenient gospel, which is modified to say, well, God loves you and God will receive you and he'll leave you where you are. And you'll accommodate your life of sin. And there won't be any consequences. There'll be no punishment. That's no gospel at all. And the emphasis sets the love of God against the holiness of God. Which not only insults him, but also implies that there's a contradiction within God. Friend, do you see the terrible insult that it is to try and use God for convenience? He's the holy God. And if we come to him at all, it must always be on his terms. Who are we to decide which parts of God's revealed word we will accept or reject? Are we the judge of God? Who are we to dictate to the sovereign Lord? And sin is serious. It needs to be dealt with for us to be able to come near to God. And that can only happen through what God has done, not what we do. And those who think that they can use God and live as they please and still be accepted by him, demand what they want of him, dismiss any demands that he makes of them, are really following in the same way as Jeroboam. And they insult God. And they show that really their hearts are still in that rebellion against him. 
It is an insult to God. But also, I want you to see it's serious because it's a self-deception. Jeroboam deceived himself. He was so confident in what he had done that he was able to cover and press down the true condition of his heart. But in reality, he knew what he was doing was wrong. He knew what he was doing was wrong. You know, this creation of a more convenient religion for himself and the people was such a clear departure from God's way. He knew what he was doing. And he persuaded others that it was just as valid as God's way. And as we've seen, he did it because it suited his purpose, even though it was a terrible error. But you might say to me, well, maybe he was sincere. Maybe it was just a a, a misstep. Maybe he just didn't realize the significance of what he was doing. How can you be sure that he knew it was wrong? Well, again, I will point you back to the fact. What does he do when the crisis comes? Does he go to Dan or Bethel? No, he doesn't. Does he go to the new priest? No, he doesn't. Does he go and cry out to the golden calves? No, he doesn't, because he knows that there is nothing in those things. He knows that those cannot help. And so he comes up with this plan, which we read together. He sends his wife to the prophet of God, the servant of the one true living God. You see, Jeroboam knew that the religion of convenience that he had created was empty. And he also knew the means which he could see the true God. You know, why had he deceived the people? Because he had convinced himself that what he had done was not that bad. And all would be well. But the crisis blows all that apart. And he's faced with a real need. You know, when all was well, Jeroboam was able to convince himself he was all right and stifle and press down his conscience and refuse to hear any inner voice of conviction. You know, it's typical, isn't it, of so many. We're going on and doing what we think is right and then something comes into our lives, disturbs us, and maybe then we're brought again to hear God's way, the truth of the Bible, the reality of Jesus the holiness of God, the requirements of God, our sin. And we hear these things and maybe they resonate with us, but we don't want to listen because we don't want to go God's way. And so many do what Jeroboam did. Though they see God's way, it doesn't suit them. It's not convenient. It doesn't fit with what they want. And so they look for something else. And they find a way of inventing for themselves a system that suits so that they can try and press down that that conviction and conscience and they convince themselves that it must be right and it's acceptable to God and regardless of what the Bible may say, it'll be okay in the end. Some even creating a form of godliness, but not according to the gospel. And then if any, any challenge comes, there's an aggressive defense and strong arguments made about sincerity and success, we can be so good at justifying our own ideas about what is right rather than submitting to what God has revealed to be true. And you find that people are harden themselves in the path that they have chosen, trying to beat down any twinge of conviction. But then Abijah is taken ill. You know, and as it were, some trouble comes to us and it disturbs us. And suddenly all that pretense begins to fall away. All the cleverness and all the, the pride is stripped away in the great crises of life and we're, we're left exposed before God. 
And here you are tonight. Would you not listen to that inner voice that tells you to turn from the emptiness and brokenness of all the wisdom of this world and listen to what God says? Will you not stop being like Jeroboam and deceiving yourself? Maybe you've set up your own golden calves to worship, as it were, some idols in your life. Maybe it's yourself. Maybe it's material things. Maybe it's some relationship. But you need to see the danger they put you in for. They have taken the place of God. And dear friend, what is there to be had in an ungodly life? Swift moments of pleasure, laughter a moment, and then which promise so much to us, but they deliver so little in our lives and we're left still in the same state. What does it really do for your soul? Consider your life in the light of eternity. What can your idols do for you when you face death and the future? They can't do anything for you. They cannot help you and you need to see that. Jeroboam is shaken in this way and he's deceived. Self-deceived, self-deceived about his own cleverness. You know, there's another tragic part of this tale. So many parts. Abijah's ill. Jeroboam knows that this created religion is useless. So he's anxious for help. What does he do? Send his wife to the prophet. But he's afraid. And he's afraid that the prophet would recognize his wife. So he comes up with this clever idea. He gets her to put on a disguise. Well, that's ridiculous. Jeroboam thinks that he can fool the prophet, get what he needs, and all without the prophet knowing. You see, he thought he was so clever. He thought he was a a step ahead. He was so confident in his own plan and his ability to scheme. So typical of sin and the sinner. He felt he could deceive God's servant, just as he felt he could do what he wanted without any consequences. How clever he was. But it would become clear that the only person he was deceiving was himself. He was so confident in himself. But if only he'd stopped to think and think properly for a moment, he would have seen how foolish his idea was. See, Jeroboam knew God's servant. He knew Ahijah, the one to whom he was sending his wife. This was the prophet who had told him that he would be king while Solomon was still alive. And this prophet was a man who'd spoken with authority, who was used of God, who was given insight by the Lord. This man could see by the power of God what would come to pass in certain situations. It was of the Lord. And yet Jeroboam thinks that he can deceive him by putting his wife in a disguise. And also by taking some presents just to get him on board. It's so foolish. And you know, what is more remarkable is this, in the narrative, when Jeroboam's wife puts on her disguise and goes to the prophet Ahijah, Ahijah himself is now physically blind. You know, the disguise was pointless because Ahijah couldn't see. But verses 5 to 6, though she was in disguise and though the prophet was blind, he sees her. And he tells her all about herself and the situation. How does he do it? Verse 5, the Lord said unto Ahijah. You know, do you see the application, dear friends? We can think that we are so clever 
We think that we can play fast and loose with the Lord, live as we want, disregard him, disregard his word, and then fall back on him in some time of crisis, pretend to be serious for a time, and then all the while just wanting his help and use him for a moment and then go on our way. And we think that we can manipulate God to do what we want. How many think that they can go through their lives living for themselves and then just at the end it will be okay? How many think that they can fool God but fail to see that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart? Again, maybe someone here tonight who comes along and pays lip service, but in reality their hearts are so far from the Lord. But thinking, well, it's enough. Enough to convince God to accept you. But don't be deceived. God is not mocked. He knew all about Jeroboam, and he knows all about you. And he knows all about the true state of your heart and where you are before him. And then as we finish, we see this tragic end. When Jeroboam's self-deception is exposed, he's faced with the reality of what he had done, and he must have been ashamed. Ashamed enough to send his wife to the man of God rather than going himself. And the text tells us this tragic end. His wife is sent back with the message that Jeroboam's son, Abijah, will die. And he does die. You know, I wonder if you've ever known something of that, in trouble and distress. You've looked to turn to the Lord, but you felt inappropriate and ashamed. A voice within condemning you, reminding you of all your rejection of the Lord and your dismissal of his word, maybe a fear to approach, and suddenly you're aware that you have no right to turn to God if you've been pursuing a life without him. And you've wanted what was right in your sight and convenient rather than seeking the Lord. But then you see your helplessness and you, you know that he is the God with whom you have to do. And you realize his might and his holiness. And you see your sin and you see that you deserve nothing from him. I wonder if you've ever sensed that and sensed something of his presence. You cannot sense the presence of the living God without feeling that fear. And that shame. And then think of what it will be like for you, sinner, to face him on that terrible day of judgment. You can't fool God. You can't choose the way that you think will bring salvation. You either come to God on his terms, submitting to him, humble before him, or you continue set against him. There's no in-between. And if you think that you can work and plan and scheme and work your way into heaven, deceiving and fooling the holy God, then one day you will awaken to the devastating realization that the only person that you've fooled is yourself. Jeroboam never repented. He never turned from his sin, his foolishness and his shame. It is a tragedy in every way. And I would urge you tonight to consider the warning that this gives to you. You can't deceive God. You can't create an approach to God that suits you, that is convenient to you, that you think will be good enough, that aims to get the benefits that God gives without God himself. We have to come to him on his terms. 
We have to realize his holiness and his majesty and his glory. We have to realize our sin and our spiritual bankruptcy that we can't save ourselves. Our rebellion, our, our sin, and we must come with that honesty, convicted and humble before him, no pretense. And we must cast ourselves on his mercy and look to God's provision of being saved through Jesus alone. And we have to turn from all of our sin, all of our trust in self, our pride, our foolishness, our arrogance, and believe in the only one who can save, in God's appointed means of saving sinners like you and me. To cast ourselves on his mercy, to plead for his forgiveness, to commit to live for him, to go his way. And when you come like that, he will not only receive you, but he'll forgive you and draw you to himself and he will bless you and you will know him. Friend, God sees you. He knows you. You can't fool him. But such is his grace that he has made a way in which sinners like me and like you can be delivered from that foolishness and from that pride and arrogance and to be brought from that and our rebellion and sin and death and judgment to life in him. And it's through Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, who came into this broken world full of arrogant sinners and gave his life and died and rose again in order to purchase our pardon. He gave himself to death in order that we might be forgiven. He paid the penalty for our sin, took the wrath that we deserved so that we might have life in him. And when we see our pride, dear friends, in the light of the cross, when we see our selfishness and our arrogance in the light of the cross, when we look at our little possessions in the light of the cross, how vain it all seems and how tragic that we have regarded them so highly, and place them before God's holy will. But there at Calvary, the Saviour died to deliver us from all of that rebellion, from all of that self-deception and empty cleverness which all lead to death, to give us life and hope in him, to bring together what was broken, to reconcile, and to free us from the slavery of sin and bring us to liberty in Christ. And when we see the cross like that, when we see what our Lord Jesus was doing in dealing with all of that for sinners like you and me, can there be any other response apart from were the whole realm of nature mine? that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So what of you tonight? Are you like Jeroboam? Are you still trying to deceive God, set up your own ideas and religion of convenience and despising God and his truth? Or have you been brought to see the foolishness and the danger of that? How I pray that you will look away from yourself and turn from your sin and look to Jesus, the Savior, God's appointed means, the way, 
the truth and the life, the one who can save you and keep you. Amen.